It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Politics About the Boring Bits. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, a really fascinating conversation uh, with, a, with a really fascinating man, Hal James, uh, was a special advisor in the Conservative government in the 1980s. He then left politics and was then drawn back to it to help out John Major in the, I'll be honest, dying days of the Conservative government in the mid-1990s. His reflections on that period and politics today, really fascinating. Uh, so that's coming up as our big thing on the podcast today. Before that, though, uh, let's take a look at what's going on in the world with these two on a Thursday. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, it's Thursday. So we say hello to Manveen Rana. Hello. And we were, uh, we were concerned because we didn't, we weren't, we were due to have Matthew Powers, so we weren't sure if we've got Matthew Powers, but we have got Matthew Powers. Here I am. Thank goodness. <laughs> are, are you all right, Matthew? Yes, I'm all right. Um, I have a deceased llama on my hands and it's it's very sad and i've just been um outside trying to find out what we could do but um that this uh this is a welcome relief from uh from that and i'm very sorry about because i know regular particularly readers of your notebook will will have chronicled for a long time yes the saga it's the saga of the llamas yeah it's it's craig i'm afraid and i don't know what went wrong but never mind well, condo- condolences, because anyone who's lost yeah. a pet... I mean, I can't say I've ever owned a llama, but anyone who's <laughs> lost a pet will know that it's... Um, very well, we, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here, um, uh, despite that. Um, let's talk about... Uh, well, this AI summit that Rishi Sunak's doing today, and the thing I wanted to sort of get our heads around, I mean, he seems to be quite enjoying himself. He's got these Microsoft and his Googles and his Elon Musks, and they've got a declaration and a communique, and they might agree a bit more today. Is it going to help him, you know, hosting something on the international stage, US Vice President coming and all of that? Um, or is it going to be a bit back to earth with a bump next week? Uh, what do you think, Matthew? I, th- I think he can't possibly believe that it's going to help him politically. No one's going to vote Tory or or like, like, like Rishi Sunak because he had this conference and people tend to switch off a bit anyway when people start talking about AI. So 
I, I have to come to the conclusion that he actually believes in this, that he thinks it's important, and that whether or not he's going to win the next election, and he probably thinks he's not, this is something he thinks it's, uh, it's worth doing. Uh, what do you think, uh, Manveen? I mean, I suppose, from Rishi Sunak's point of view, getting through a week where everything has happened on his terms rather than being profited <laughs> by events is probably quite good. Yeah, and, you know, he doesn't have to struggle to make sure he gets to shake everyone's hands at a summit. So normally when he turns up on the world stage, there's always a bit of jeopardy, but they're organising it this time. So, you know, that's all great. Um, I agree with Matthew. I think it probably is something that he feels very passionately about. I think this is one of the causes he really wanted to take on. Um, But I sort of think, uh, I think two things can be true at the same time. So I don't think he's doing it because he thinks it's going to win any votes. Uh, You know, AI is still something that I think most people just don't really know enough about. So it's not something that's going to swing a vote. Uh, But I I often wondered whether this is about his post-politics career. You always get the, the impression with Rishi Sunak, that what he'd really love to do is go to California and sort of fit in with all the tech bros. And suddenly he's got an opportunity to get more to come here um, and hang out with them. So, you know, he he looks delighted at sort of having Elon Musk and people like that um, at his meetings. So I don't know. I half wondered if it was about his what happens after the election rather than the election itself. So his chat with with Elon Musk later might be more of a job interview rather than a... um, (laughs) It's not clear who's interviewing who. <laughs> that, that's no, a really inter- who knows what might happen. That's a really interesting thought of of yours, uh, Manveen. I it hadn't struck me that that his his eye might might be on uh, post Downing Street. Uh, I, I I've been asking myself uh, how could this help him at all domestically? I think because most of us don't understand AI and don't entirely understand even what the what the arguments are. Uh, we we think he must be rather clever. Um, I mean, you can't imagine that's, Boris, Boris Johnson true. host. Can you imagine Boris <laughs> hosting a, a summit on AI? And you can imagine, uh, you can imagine Sunak. So perhaps he thinks at least people will will credit him with intelligence. Yeah, and, but, is, but also, I suppose actually, this is much more aligned to his supposed uh, slogan, you know, long-term... Was it long-term decisions for, yes. for, the, for a brighter future? Actually, Or brighter it, decisions for a long-term future. What, what of them, anyway. what are the, what are those, yeah. Yeah, the word salad. <laughs> but it does actually fit better with that. You know, it's like getting yeah. people together to think about something which isn't like at the forefront of our minds right now, but it'll be an, an issue in the long-term. Um, that's actually a better fit than long-term decisions for a brighter future. We're cancelling HS2 to Manchester, which is a sort of harder, <laughs> harder sell. Yes. Being someone who thinks about these, you know, these things and and can bring people together to think about them, just might slightly play into his uh, into his um, wheelhouse a bit more, Mamie. Yeah, and I think also. Um... You know, we know he's very keen on the sort of California lifestyle. He hung on to his green card for exactly the sort of thing. He, he always seems most energised when he's hanging out with Silicon Valley types. But um, I think also one of the things that we very rarely hear when a big event like this happens is sort of the tussle behind the scenes. So we know America was trying to put forward a, a proposal um, for regulation on AI on exactly the same day as the summit started. So there's an international tussle over who gets there first, who's going to be um, trademarking regulation and who's going to be leading the way. So I think there's sort of lots of reasons why Britain would want to be at the heart of the summit, even though it's not a, a vote winner. Yes. And I, well, we'll wait to see uh, how it emerged. Yeah, I mean, given just just anything going well on his watch, I suppose, is, um, 
will be short up Refreshing. as a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, because next week, it really yeah. is back to uh, work with a bump. On Tuesday, we'll get the King's speech. There's been bits and pieces of what might be in it. Not actually, not as much speculation as, as maybe we might have had in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, if WhatsApp's been the big issue of the week, uh, Katie Balls has got a really interesting column in the Times today, where she talks less about the sort of the culture in Downing Street with the use of WhatsApp, but just the fact that there were so many WhatsApp groups, the, the Tory party ones are better known, but they're in the Labour Party too, which just means that MPs are perpetually moaning, gossiping, griping, plotting in a way that they at least had to get together in a room to do it before. Matthew, do you think it's... It, has it made... MPs harder to control the fact they're they're perpetually moaning in WhatsApp. No, they're always they were always like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean you're 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 quite right that, that in but the past they had to get together in a room, but they did get together in a room when I was in the House of Commons. There was the uh, the members' smoking room, uh, which was sort of brandy and cigars. There was the canteen where lots of people met. Mrs. Thatcher used to go down there. There was the Kremlin bar, as we. We called it, which was uh, which was where Labour MPs, particularly, but Tories used to go more like a pub. And then there was the Strangers Bar, where you could entertain other people, and uh, there was also Annie's Bar, where you could entertain journalists. So there were plenty of rooms for people to get together in, and they did, and they moaned constantly, and they said exactly the same sorts of things about whoever was the Prime Minister, Health Secretary, or anybody else, as as they're saying now. And I I think all this. This stuff, especially with the inquiry, but not just the inquiry, all it's really done is give us, give us the public, a sort of window in, into the way the top of big organisations always work. That's interesting. I suppose, yeah, the, the the idea that people weren't incredibly rude about their colleagues in politics oh, before yeah. WhatsApp, <laughs> uh, it's just it, it gives it a sense of permanence. I suppose, uh, um, Manfred. Yeah, I mean, in the past, as Matthew says, you know, this stuff was happening in smoke-filled rooms all the time, but people were so cautious about there not being a paper trail. You know, you wouldn't put this stuff in an email to a journalist, but you might whisper it, you know, over a drink. Um, what's weird about WhatsApp, and I don't really know why it's happened. I wonder if it's because, you know, everyone knows it's encrypted, but for some reason, psychologically, people seem to think whatever they put down in writing, in text, on a WhatsApp will be hidden and will only be seen by the people reading it and the weird thing is we've had so many leaks of whatsapp groups now that surely you sort of think people realize that these things leak all the time um what you're saying is not private and yet nobody seems to have amended their behavior um so you know you half wonder whether this is just sort of you know um, the first generation effectively adapting and then you know in five years time nobody will want to put anything dangerous in whatsapp because they'll have learned lessons but none of that's happened so far you know, lots of people who've who've had really damning things leaked um, just seem to what WhatsApp you know carry on communicating really sort of incendiary things via big big groups on WhatsApp, which seems really bizarre. I think it is happening. Uh, I, I can remember when the advice always was don't write anything down, and mm. after a while I learned that you shouldn't write anything down. And when we only had email, uh, we we began to realize that emails were not private and could easily be forward and 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 get into the public domain and it takes us a while to catch up with these things i think we are now realizing that whatsapp is in the same category and you have if we were to have another 
COVID-style crisis, I don't think people would be WhatsApping in anything like the way that they are now. We're reduced, actually, only to being able to talk to people face-to-face. And even then, of course, you don't know whether they've taken a note and may tell other people what you said. And much harder in lockdown, of course. I think a lot of this sort of really went wild in lockdown when people couldn't have those sort of secret meetings. Um, but also, like we, in a way, when if this if this is all going to change, and if in five years' time MPs aren't doing it, then we've been quite lucky to be in that window where we get this complete oversight yes. over what people are saying. <laughs> That's so rare in politics. Yeah, well, well, well <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's um, people might be slightly overblowing the idea that up in, you know in the good old days, no one was ever rude. I suppose in the, in the past they kept it for their own diaries and published it years later. I, I can, I could just remember. I can just remember a particularly ugly member of Parliament uh, called Ian Mikado, um, who was just a, a, at the end of his career when I was at the beginning of mine, and uh, he was—he looked like a stonefish. He really was extraordinarily unattractive looking. And uh, Churchill said about him to somebody, "He's not as nice as he looks." <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, Churchill, I mean, a lot of the things subscribed to him, but actually, he didn't actually say yes. but he did have a, yeah. g- a good line in put-downs. He did have a good line in put-downs. Um, uh, let's move on, because I wanted to, because, um, you know, among, amongst all the other news, AI and COVID and uh, obviously um, the Middle East and the storm, you know, in the past, we'd have been slightly more focused, I think, on probably the, the, the king and queen being in Africa. Uh, they're in Kenya uh, today. Um the king didn't deliver the unequivocal public apology for colonial abuses earlier in the week that, that some had uh, asked for. Do you think that was a mistake, Matthew? No, no. It, it would have been the thin end of the wedge. I, I mean, a British monarch can't go anywhere in the world without being called upon to apologise for colonial uh, the, the colonial times. And uh, all his visits, if he isn't careful, would be punctuated by uh, uh, apologies for what Britain did here or there. And I, I think he put it quite handsomely. Uh, I think if, if, if you weren't yourself responsible for something, the idea of saying sorry is a little bit odd, but it is certainly right to say that it, 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 you regret it and it's, it, it, it was a terrible thing. And, and that's what he's done. And of course, that there will be people in in the media who who whip it all up and and, and say he's he's tr- he's trying to duck responsibility. But I would have thought most people in Kenya will will see it for what it was. I think a a, a, a fairly heartfelt statement and one which acknowledged what a lot we did wrong. I suppose that's right, isn't it, Matthew? The, the language because he didn't do it, so uh, apologising seems as a sort of odds thing to do actually it's almost more powerful i i think that i probably do more powerful to Mm. acknowledge you know regret and uh um the hurt whereas apologizing just you know i remember like we talked about this before david um not david gordon brown apologizing for people who were sent to australia you just think it's such a weird thing um to 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 go about apologizing for things that other people did yeah, it's hard to make an apology like that sound authentic because yes. obviously you had no control. So it sort of ends up sounding like, a, a, you know, like just a statement rather than a heartfelt apology. Whereas I think you're right. I think the king expressing genuine regret for what happened feels much more personal and like, and like it's something he's, you know, he's really thought about and something that he feels. Um, but it feels like they've sort of they've, they've come up with a form of words which which gets them out of this sort of hole now because it, it is something that's popping up wherever they go you know we sort of had 
um, the Prince and Princess of Wales um, when they went to the Caribbean, again, in, in a very similar situation, sort of being asked to apologise for slavery, effectively. And, uh, and so you, you have to come up with a form of words, which shows that you obviously don't support what happened. But, you know, you can only be sorry for your part in it, which uh, at uh, this stage is sort of, a, it's, there's very little. Yeah. And, and the, the, the Mau Mau did kill a lot of innocent people, mostly Africans, actually, not not white people. And the Mau Mau led, finally, to a, an independence government under Jomo Kenyatta. You wouldn't ask now, I suppose, the Kenyan government to apologise for, for those people whom the Mau Mau killed, because this government didn't do it. And I, I think it's the same with the king. Let's move on and talk about whether height matters in politics. American politics has been a bit derailed by debate over whether or not the Florida governor and presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis has been wearing lifts to make him appear taller. Little secret heels inside his shoes. He, I have to say, denies it, but... Uh, the menswear expert Derek Guy, who we've spoken to before, and a series of shoemakers have, <laughs> have told Politico they think it's true. Um, and it was really interesting because only a handful of short presidential candidates have beaten their taller rivals. Barack Obama and Joe Biden are both shorter than their opponents. But often it's the tall guy who gets it. Uh, Donald Trump is mocking DeSantis as tiny uh on uh online um let's bring in mark lucas who was a director of presentation for tony blair and gordon brown he knows how much this matters mark does height matter in politics yeah of course uh height matters height and presence i would say is a combination so i mean for example with trump although he's tall we have to do you know we do have to recall he's got very small hands so that kind of you know balances out in my view (laughs) you know with with Ron DeSantis, he's caught bang to rights, isn't he, really? I've, you know, I watched about 300 TikToks, as is my way, these days uh, before doing this. And he's, he's, his feet have been measured, the pronation, the angle of the foot. I'm afraid it's bang to rights. He's a smaller guy trying to look bigger. But, you know, it, it, I've got two thoughts about this. The first is the, you know, the Harvard Daniel Lieberman we're in a period of disevolution where instead of our leaders getting bigger and stronger and better, they're getting smaller and weaker and weirder. And, and the kind of facts, well, the, the height facts at least bear this out, right? Schultz, five foot five, Putin, five foot six, Rishi between four and five foot, Sadiq Khan, five foot five, you know, Starmer, way out there claiming five foot eight and a half and he's you know he's doggedly clinging to that that half to give him the edge I see. <laughs> um, so you know we're living in a period of shorter guys but then on the other hand maybe it's the shorter guys time we got napoleon the film coming out he wasn't the biggest guy you know who's the, who's the biggest male figure of the year you could probably argue ken right ken's 12 inches so <laughs> maybe you know maybe it's the era of the small guy without without wanting to be rude man and matthew you're you're not giants so oh, I am. I, I, I am. I am, Matt. In, in, in this sense, I feel like a giant. Yeah. Nobody related to me 
um, is as tall as I am. I am five foot seven <laughs> and a half. My father was five foot four. Both my grandfathers were about five foot four. My mother's five foot one. Um, I don't have a grandmother over five foot. They were both under five foot. My brothers, sisters, cousins, all shorter than me. So I've always felt tall. Um, I still feel tall, and I talk about you know little Matt or or, or, or little George or whoever, um, and people point out to me that they're both taller than I am, but I, I feel taller than them. I I, I think that the Ron DeSantis has done himself far more harm than good in that he's looked as though he cares about being short. If you are short, the last thing you want to do is look as though you <laughs> yeah. care about it. Yeah, just, yeah. Just, just, well, this is weird business of Rishi Sunak's trousers being so uh, high <laughs> up his legs, apparently to try and make him look taller. But I don't, I, I mean, anyway. all, those, all those photographs at the top of steps yeah. so that he looks taller. Um, yeah, I, I wonder the if there's something in, in that, that uh, notion that politicians are getting shorter. I mean, is, is it actually just the Napoleon complex at play? Uh, is it the sort of person who goes into politics yeah. has something to prove? Yeah, swaggering about a bit. Well, it, well it, when we can try and prove that Rishi Sunak is wearing um, lifts in his shoes, we know we've really made a breakthrough. <laughs> uh, Mark, Mark, thank you for, for joining us for this um, incredibly important piece of investigative journalism. Uh, Mark Lucas, uh, formerly director of presentation, Tony Blair, got a ban. And thank you to Manveen Rana and to Matthew Powers. Matthew, just to say, we've had loads of messages of people sending in their sympathies about Craig as well. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> uh, so sorry to hear about uh, Matthew's llama. We know how much he cares for them. Much sympathy. Uh, pass on our best wishes uh, to MP. Says Phil. We've got lots of those spots, so there we are. Um, lovely stuff. Uh, we'll catch up again uh, soon. Manveen Ryan with Matthew Paris Day. Of course, you can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you, well, basically wherever you're listening to this. And you can read Matthew every week in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Hal James. Now, it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So, 1997, Tony Blair versus John Major, the Tories' worst election defeat in nearly 100 years. Well, in the years running up to that election, the Conservatives were tearing themselves apart and it began to feel the party was running out of roads. It's not wholly dissimilar to the position which he soon finds himself in today. So, what are the lessons of a dying Tory government? And can you turn things around? Hal James joined Number 10 as political secretary to John Major in 1994. He told me about how Tory sleaze in the mid-90s drove John Major mad, what it was like to sit around the breakfast table with him, and how Rishi Sunak could possibly yet still turn things around. But first of all, I began by asking how he ended up working in politics. I started life in, in commercial radio. Yeah. I was a capital when it started. And I had this fantastic colleague who was an extremely dashing Australian girl. And we had a direct line on the phone and it used to ring occasionally. And this honeyed sort of, you know, mature voice would come down the phone saying, hello, can I speak to Virginia, please? And um, this was Tim Bell. The great Tim Bell, Lord Bell, who was Mrs Thatcher's favourite ad man, masterminded her three election victories. And this was the boyfriend. And so uh, I met him through her. And at a low point in breakfast television. So I left Capital and I went to <laughs> breakfast TV. TVAM. Hello, good morning and welcome. 
to TVAM. So I went to work with Peter J, David Frost, yeah. Anna, Angela, Michael Parkinson, you know, the gang that had been persuaded by Frosty to, you know, take a slice of the action in a broadcast uh, outfit and, and to present there. And so we were absolutely overwhelmed with presenter talent. <laughs> but we were slightly less overwhelmed with clear editorial direction. And when it launched, it had no... Uh, famously, you know, it had no ratings and was rescued by the famous Roland Rat, Roland Rat. Uh, who was the rat that came to the benefit of the sinking ship. I'm back with the most expensive series ever to come out of this bureaucratic dump. Um, anyway, I said to Tim at some point over dinner with Virginia, you know, my God, you know, this is the madhouse. And he said, oh, I think I've got an idea for you. And he introduced me to a man called David Young. Of course you always get naysayers and people who want to criticise. That's life, I'm afraid. But you should go round with me and see how many hundreds of people are positively changing their lives. David Young at the time had just been put into the cabinet by Mrs Thatcher and he was in the cabinet office and I went in as his special advisor. And so that was my sort of first introduction to politics, government. I was a sort of bag carrier. And he, and I think he wanted me there because, you know, the notion was I understood the media because I had actually worked at it. You know, it's a kind of specious link, but I, I did my best. And I really enjoyed government. I really enjoyed working with the civil service. It was like... Playing tennis with a really good coach, you, it raised your game. There were very clever people all around you. And so that's how I sort of drifted into it. And that was where I met everybody who then came back and asked me if I would come in and work for John Major when he had uh, a refresh yeah, yeah. Uh, at the end of 94. I'm going to contest this election. I'm going to contest this election to win. I believe I will win. I came in to run the political office at that point. How did you find it going from, you know, people say politics is show business for ugly people. You'd done the showbiz, you'd been in sort of Kenny Ever-era capital. Yeah, yeah. Then all those stars, David Frost and, and Roland Ratt even uh, at TVAM. How did you find it then being on the other side of the fence? There's a lot of egos in all of that world, radio, TV, <laughs> politics. Being in a broadcast organisation and bringing in a government department have very many similarities because at the end of the corridor is the world. And the world is interested in what you're doing. They may be interested in bits of what you're doing in employment, bits of what you're doing in trade and industry, but government itself and the machinations, as you know, you fill you know, several hours every day talking <laughs> about it, has a kind of energy to it. And there's a lot of activity in all that. And it has an outlet and it has a purpose. And it has a sort of requirement for public presentation, public dialogue, engagement. And in that way, it was very live broadcasting. So I didn't think about it in terms of the personnel or the, the people as such. It was the sort of the entity. It had an energy about it, which I kind of recognised. Were you very political? No. So, I mean, did you did you like Margaret Thatcher? Did you come well, across her in the course of your yes, work? Yes, no, no, I came across her a lot because, I mean, David Young was very much a favourite. And as she entered the sort of latter periods of her sort of leadership, where she became the, the great leader paranoia sort of, sort of descends on you. And during the 87 election, which I worked on, you know, there was a lot of tension between her and then the party chairman, Norma Tebbit, because he was an elected politician. This was her third election. You know, what was going to happen in the future? David Young... Hey, businessman promoted entirely in her thrall in the House of Lords, no threat at all. And, you know, so, so I, I kind of worked with, with David and got to know and understand the machinations of politics. But he was in the Lords, so I was never really exposed to the hard graft of the punch-ups in the Commons during the period working with him. That came, obviously, once I went into number 10. 
So you left and then came back? So I left and came back. I went to become a sort of a comms person in a, in a large corporation. So then Joel Major wins the 92 election when you weren't there, but he wins the 92 election. Nothing to do su- with me, su- Surprisingly. <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, yeah. To lots of people, it's a surprise, yeah. based on yeah. the polls and so on. And everything seems to be going quite well. And then it doesn't. Black Wednesday happens, a series of scandals come along, and then he gives his speech, the back-to-basic speech. We need to go back to good old-fashioned family values. Neighbourliness, decency, courtesy, they're still alive. They're still the best of Britain. They haven't changed. And yet somehow people feel embarrassed by them. Madam President, we shouldn't be. It is time to return to those old core values. Yeah, he, well, he, he didn't give that speech, actually, or at least I don't think he thought he was giving that speech. It was the 93 party conference, mm. and he wanted to get the conference back to sort of kitchen table issues. Our schools, education, crime, law and order. You know, these are the things the Conservative government should be worrying about and getting right. That's what the speech was intended to be, as I understood it. What happened was it was spun, and I think it was spun... You know, I, I, I don't think there was malevolence here, but I think there was a sort of, there was an appetite to turn it into something it wasn't quite, which is we're going to be the party of family values, we're going to be, you know, back to basics in terms of good behaviour, high moral standards and all of this stuff. Very dangerous territory, as every politician uh, subsequently has discovered. And it was that interpretation of the speech, more than the speech itself, that then, of course, did come back to haunt him because we had this litany of MPs I mean, it was doing co- the most extraordinary things. And it was quite extraordinary. And I, yeah. I went back and I thought, because is it a bit like, you know, I don't know, sometimes you think, oh, there was a lot of that happened in politics and you go back and it happened twice, but it felt like a lot. The list of yeah. he was having an affair, he was... Yeah. Taking yeah. money, yeah. he was having left an affair. his wife for a man. He was left three his, you affairs, know, had, had three an illegitimate kid. All of that, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. so at that point, and, then, and it kept going and it just right kept up going. until the first fortnight of the ninety-seven election, where various things popped out uh, in in the tabloid press. And literally, I remember John Major turning to me and looking at me and said, "I mean, is this?" Is this real? Are these, are these people really doing this? What is going on out there? You know, I, he just shook his head in despair. I have made it clear from the very outset that these matters must be properly examined. Why else would I have set up the inquiries? Many people criticised me for doing so and said, why have you done this? You could have brushed it aside into, after a week of parliamentary difficulty and it would all have gone away. I didn't do that. And why didn't I do that? Because I happen to care about the reputation of Parliament in the short term and the long term, and if, if people had misbehaved, then it must be dealt with. So take us back to the moment then in 94, so a year or so after John Major had made the, yeah, the, the back yeah, to basic yeah, speech, yeah, yeah. and the drip, drip of scandal had become a, a decent flow by that point. Yeah. You get the call saying, will you... Did he call you up himself? How did you end no, up in that position? No, well, well, what I was told was John Major had... There were a number of special advisers across government and he'd been, he'd been put to him, well, you could have this person, that person, the other person. And I think he didn't, he didn't want to take somebody from another department. He didn't want to take someone who was a sort of cookie-cutter, sort of spad. So I was then invited in to have a cup of tea and he said, you know, he was very realistic and he said, you know, post-DRM, you know, they've now got a new leader, you know, Tony Blair had taken over. This is going to be hard graft. I don't know where it's going to go, but if 
you're up for the journey and if you're up for a bumpy ride, you know, I'd, lo- I'd love to have you. And it was an irresistible kind of challenge. I just thought the honour, privilege and excitement of going in and working at number 10. I liked him as well. I mean, you know, John Major was an extremely likeable man and uh, and still is an extremely likeable man. Uh, and even though he wore the office, you know, heavily at times, I mean, it weighed him down. He, he was always very personable and very thoughtful. And, you know, as a member of his team, you always felt it was, we, we all moved together in a very, you know, good-humoured way inside Number 10, which one hasn't always seen in recent days. And explain for people who don't know what the political secretary role is, as distinct from being... Lots of people will be familiar with what the head of policy might do or the head of communications. What is the role of political secretary? You look after the Prime Minister in his or her role as the leader of the political party. So you are the key connection point for the political party to come into Number 10 and get time with the Prime Minister, get attention from the Prime Minister. So you're working sort of across government, you're working very closely alongside the the senior civil service. You're running his political diary. So, you know, the party machine has a requirement for him to turn up at dinners, events, regional tours, you know, meet MPs, meet, you know, senior supporters of the party, all that sort of stuff. So you're running that bit of the diary. You're fighting for space. You're also providing input into political speeches. You play a part in... At the time, we had Prime Minister's Questions twice a week. So Tuesdays and Thursday mornings were completely dedicated to preparing him for Prime Minister's questions. So the substantive answers would come from the civil service and then we'd have a look at them and say, OK, now what's Labour doing in that area? What's the opposition doing in that area? How do we have a bit of a knockabout here? What's the comeback at the leader of the opposition about this issue if they come at him about something that the government's done in that space? And that's not a job for the civil servants. That's a job for the political office. And how was that going up against... Tony Blair. Again, the characterisation with the benefit of hindsight is that he was very good, particularly at PMQs. Isn't it extraordinary that the Prime Minister of our country can't even urge his party to support his own position? Weak, weak, weak. He was absolutely on a roll and it it is acknowledged now, you know, all these many years later. uh, He was a superlative political communicator and he had the energy bounced to do extremely well at Prime Minister's Question. That's not to say that John Major in his own sort of slightly soft-spoken, good-humoured way didn't, you know, score his own points. If there's any double standards, they sit there on the opposition benches. You know, I think with hindsight, one maybe sees it as entirely, you know, one-sided because of what happened and the, you know, the overwhelming majority they got. But actually, you know, John Major prepared very carefully for Prime Minister's Question. He took it very seriously. He knew a lot of the detail. He was very much across the detail. And he did at times manage, you know, there was still the capacity to score points off the opposition as they developed their policies and sort of rehearsed ideas about how where they, where, where they would go, what direction they'd go. In. And he didn't do too badly at that. And he did well enough to keep, you know, his own side reasonably calm because the thing about Prime Minister's questions, does it matter? Uh, It sort of matters in the House and it matters in your parliamentary party and it matters when the parliamentary party, the MPs, go back to their constituencies. Their mood, their ability to talk up the government of the day uh, is sort of intricately linked to how the leader does at PMQs. 
And I suppose, given everything else that's going on, the state of the economy, the opinion polls, actually just putting a bit of a spring in people's step again at PMQs is... It gives you a bit of an advantage. Yeah. And then, I mean, it took a ridiculous disproportionate amount of time. Which actually is why Blair ended up there moving Indeed, it to, indeed. To and I, and in, I, th I think I may have played a modest part in this because, you know, the people I knew who worked for Blair, you know, afterwards I said, if you're looking, if you're looking at anything that needs reforming in terms of an orderly life at number 10, that's the one to look at. Because you were just constantly preparing for it. It was Tuesdays well, and Thursdays. Well, Tuesdays and Thursday mornings were written off to you. Yeah, yeah. Thursday morning he'd sit in cabinet whilst we did the work outside. But, you know... First thing at breakfast, we'd have a, a, a briefing meeting, identify the issues that we were likely to have to cover, come up with some lines, and then we'd go back in at lunchtime, and then we'd go over to the house at 2.30, 3 o'clock you'd be on your feet, 3.15, then he was stuck in the house because lots of MPs would then queue outside the office wanting to talk to him. You know, it ate, it ate a chunk of the Prime Minister's time. Did he, although he told you it was going to be hard work and difficult, did he give up hope of the 1997 election? Uh, no, I don't think he did, and I don't think politicians ever do. You know, one, the opposition can screw up. You know, they get things wrong. They trip up. I mean, you know, we've all seen that famous quote from Peter Mandelson. You know, it was like crossing a six-lane motorway with a porcelain vase, mm. you know. The closer they got to the election and the better the, the polling, the more nervous they got yeah. that if they got something wrong. And if you're, if you're in power, you've got all the levers. You're, you know what you're doing. You've got some levers. I mean, we, we were down to a... What were we down to? Minus two, I think, yeah. the majority. By, so by so the you end. didn't have many levers left. So we, 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 our, our levers were a bit floppy, yeah, yeah. Matt. But, you know, <laughs> but you still have the capacity, you know, to, to announce stuff yeah. and do stuff. And we also were in... We were very focused on green shoots. You know, the economy. You know, it was definitely turning around. You could see, if you go back and you look at yeah. the indicators, you know, growth, productivity, uh, employment, unemployment, you know, all those indicators are going in the right direction. So, no, we never gave up because you thought, actually, some of the positive messages about the economy will start to come through the longer we leave it. You know, more people might think they're putting something at risk. You know, the, all the old, don't let Labour ruin it, you know, that so-and-so's doing very well, the classic sort of Saatchi-type campaigns uh, that the Tories would run you know don't put you know the economy at risk i think that's right now that that's i'm sure where starmer is you know thinking very carefully how do i inoculate myself and you hear it every time they give an interview from the possibility that the tories will start to cost their program work out all the tax implications of that and make the most powerful case they can against it and thus unsettle people as they go into an election and that's what they did very effectively in 92 i think frankly by 97 so much else had come on the agenda and the Tories were so chronically split by this debate about terms for entering the euro that it became impossible to make a positive message about the economy and to get off the kind of internal divisions but 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 in 92 I think that was a that very difficult uh, that was a very different uh, environment um, and probably more akin to where Rishi is now because, I mean, Rishi Sunak is a new Prime Minister. In 92, John Major was a new mm. Prime Minister. By 97, John Major, you know, not only had he been Foreign Secretary and Chancellor under Mrs Thatcher, but he had been Prime Minister for seven years. And we had gone through all the difficulties of ERM and the euro and all the sleaze noise. And we were, you know, we were mass exterminating beef. Um, <laughs> of course. Because, you know, houses. in that last year, yeah. BSE came upon us and that distracted a lot of our time. It's 
time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In terms of his... His approach to the job, the characterization that he obsessively read all of the media and it sort of weighed heavily on him. You know, the different prime ministers take a different approach to the media and what people are saying about him. Is that is that a fair assess- sort of characterization? It is, and we did our level best to try and stop <laughs> it. He, he did. Early mornings were a busy time in the prime minister's flat. We'd go up there first thing, and that would be the moment where you'd sort of try and capture him to go through what the policy issues were and what the the program was, and that's where you would you would get the sort of the raw, unexpurgated John Major about you know his thoughts for the day and what he hoped was going to happen or not. And uh, as you say, even at that point, at like seven. 30 in the morning, there were times where he said, have you seen what they've said about me in X or Y? And I go, uh, no, promise I haven't had a second to look at those yet. And, you know, he would be, you know, he would rifle through the papers. He'd spot stuff. He had just an unearing nose. He'd find it. But bear in mind, we were living in a different age. Yeah. This was his version of Twitter obsession. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, you know, as soon as the paper came in, the Evening Standard came in, he'd walk towards it in the hallway at number 10 and leaf through it. And he would always walk into the private office and look at CFAX. CFAX, who remembers CFAX? <laughs> the, the CFAX was sort of imprinted on the screen well, of the it, television. Was this wanted to know what was going on in the world or wanted to know Both. what the world was saying about him? Both. Yeah. Both. He wasn't self-absorbed in that way, but he, he was a sort of one-man polling machine. You know, I'd watch him going around receptions and talking to people and saying, did you see the news tonight? What, what? And he'd be testing them for what they remembered or what messages came over most powerfully to them. And, you know, he was always very interested in people's sort of reaction to it. And he, he would listen. He would listen. It's a good quality of yeah, a politician. Yeah. I, I, I commend it. And then you obviously left government when he left government in 97. Yeah. But then you came back again. You just couldn't keep away from the place. I well, I got I got sucked back in because first of all, I you know, flattery. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> My weak ego. I was asked to sit on this committee called the Phyllis Review. 
And this was Bob Phyllis, who had been asked to come in after... So we, we, the, people will remember Joe Moore and Tony Wright, in, uh, the, who ran the Select Committee, Administration of Government Select Committee. He did a review on, you know, Good Day to Bury Bad News. And he called it These Unfortunate Events. And he said, one of the things you've got to sort out in government is... Who is communicating? Is it all the political spads? Is there a civil service machine? Is anyone communicating on behalf of the government or is it all yeah. communication about political parties? So this was after 9-11? This was 2003. Yeah. And we did this review, which was just to say, how do you run a government communications function effectively? Yeah. And how do you divide the responsibilities between the civil service, the spads? How can politicians get the sort of level of support and input that they need alongside the public getting a government-funded machine that tells them the facts about what their government yeah. is doing, the facts about their pension, the facts about their taxes, the facts about, you know, hospitals, you know, whatever it was. And so we, I sat on this committee with various journalists and, and others to look at all that, and we decided we needed a sort of top-dog civil servant communicator, and number 10 needed a top-dog political communicator, but probably it wasn't a sensible idea to have both of those combined in one individual who then both held civil service budgets and a political agenda. And that had been the model with Alistair. Alistair Campbell, yeah. And Alistair had had this extraordinary sort of range. But by then, Alistair had left number 10. And so they were looking for someone to do the civil service job. And, they would, and Andrew Turnbull, who was then the Cabinet Secretary, phoned me up and said, you've been on this committee, you've written this report. You've said, why don't you put your hat in the ring for the job? And at the time, I weekly... He said, I, I was just, I just thought this will be a really interesting role. This, you know, and having spent a year getting under the skin of the issues and the problems, having met a lot of the people across government who were kind of interested in the subject, I just thought, you know, I mean, I will do this. I would like to do this. And, and then I went in, as you say, and I went in as permanent secretary, government communications in the cabinet office in 2004. So that was 94, 2004. Rishi Sunak picks the phone up to you in 2024 and says, come and help me. Is there anything I can do to turn things around? Well, he's not going to do that. <laughs> I'm an, but if I'm, he did? <laughs> you know, look, I, I, the, the, I have no greater insight than I'm sure the very clever no. people around him. I saw the other day in the Times newspaper that someone said, if it's, uh, you know, this is a Tory uh, spokesman talking off the record, inevitably. If it's Conservative versus Labour, Labour will win. If it's Conservative versus Labour change... Labour will win. If it's Conservative change versus Labour change, we may be in with a chance. And do you think that's realistic? Yeah. I mean, that he's had to be a bit punchy about his change, mm. you know, and, and any change, you know, will we'll have, you know, a bit of a knockabout around it. You can't immediately judge whether that worked or not. You know, it takes a little while for these things to settle. And that, that's where, you know, you need to have a, a good pollster with you. You need to have some good policy brains around you to think through how you, you deliver those. So I, I think as much as I know about what strategy he's on and the one I look at through the, the prism of the papers, I mean, I can see why they've got to it. I think it is less like 97 now because I don't think Starmer is quite in the place that Tony Blair was. But equally, I don't think Rishi Sunak... I think Rishi Sunak has some upside as that he is still new and still has the capacity to present a sort of fresh agenda, which I think was more problematic for John Major by the time we got to 97. And it's, I, th I think he may go into uh, an election with a more united party than John Major was able to muster because the 
the very first week of 97, the whole of the media was focused on one thing and one thing alone, which is what every MP put in their manifesto to their constituencies about Europe yeah. and about the Euro. And John Major wanted to say, we must wait and then we will negotiate, but I will not rule it out. And far too many of his own MPs said, we must rule it out now. And that gave him a very rocky start to the election campaign. Well, we'll see how it how it all pans out. It might, it, yeah. I suppose it's one of those things, and the the, the the Conservatives have only got a few options when it comes to strategy, and it might not work, but it, they've got to do something. Um, exactly. As long as as long as Rishi Sunak doesn't make a speech promising a return to to go back to basics, <laughs> I would recommend against that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> James, lovely to see. You. Thanks so much for joining us on Tide. <laughs> 